Welcome to Oops! All Monsters, the deadly, unserious show about creatures, cryptids, and curiosities, curated by two weirdos from wild and wonderful West Virginia, that weirdo with me, when I can pull him away from the creature double feature he hosts at the local TV station downtown is Gavin. And this weirdo with me, fresh in from Portsmouth, is Hess. <laughs> Let's hope not. Uh, and we are here to, as we always are, delight and edify you with tales of mysterious monsters from mythology, film, literature, TV, as well as gaming from the console and the tabletop and beyond. On a rotating basis, each of us brings a monster into the shop unknown to the other presenter and discusses their origins and implications for the benefit of you, dear readers at home. So as a brief reminder, check the Instagram because it's going to have relevant photos to things that we're going to be discussing, imagery or video versions of video clips, and our describing segment at the end of the show is definitely twice as funny if you see the the, the pictures that we're talking about. So check us all at... Check us out at Instagram, Oops All Monsters. It's exactly the handle that you think it would be. Gavin, you're going to present us with the... Villainous Vocabulary. Okay, so what are we looking at? What do we have for vocabulary? at an old Middle English word, the Fook Sheet. <laughs> That is some real middling English. So what is a fook? How do I spell fook sheet for one? F-U-K-S-H-E-E-T. Fook sheet is the foremost sail on a ship. Uh -huh. uh, ultimately, a sh it's a ship's foremast, while the fook sheet or fook sail is a <laughs> sail attached to the ship's fook mast. <laughs> I'm sure there's some sailors out there that are going to correct our pronunciation on that. And uh, to all of you... I don't care. You can't get me. I'm on land. I'm not going to yell fuck sheet all over and over again. <laughs> hey, toy down that fuck sheet, mate, before oh, we all damn, get, before we sheet. go right into them sirens. Yeah, okay. Uh, great. Full fuck sheet. Uh, so, fuck sheet has been our... Three fuck sheets to the wind. <laughs> hey, now that's, that's cooking with sheets. Okay. <laughs> Now that we are out of vocabulary, let's get on to this week is one of my topics for those of you keen readers at home who are uh, reading along in numerical or chronological order. And I'm going to start, as we usually do, with a brief story. But anybody listening to this as your first episode, this will, the whole show is not made out of this, so don't, don't be afraid. Um, Gavin, I, before we started rolling tape, quote-unquote, I mentioned this one's probably going to be one that you're going to catch pretty quickly, but um, we'll, Maybe. We'll, we'll, we'll see. I'm confident in your powers of deduction. <laughs> Imagine you are a junior in high school. The brisk fall air blows through your suburban neighborhood. You're worried about keeping your grades up, but are distracted by your two interlocking passions. Your dreamboat girl-next-door girlfriend, her pants, how to get in them, 
and schlocky B-rated horror movies. I know that was technically four things, but I didn't say I wasn't going to lie. Every night, you dance back and forth obsessively between studying your trig homework and the fuzzed-out creature features presented nightly by your local yet surprisingly famous schlock TV host, a bumbling old fellow digging up the corpse of his former glory as a low-rent Van Helsing for paychecks and the cheesecloth-thin dignity of the totally unironic horror host job. But tonight, a real distraction presents itself as you press further into the fleshy machinations of a much-needed makeout session with your cute-as-a-button girlfriend. As the television tube plays tricks on your mind, or is it something else, you ignore, or maybe you miss her signals to slow things down, and suddenly you're a very 80s high school jerk with a, an appropriately righteously indignant girlfriend picking up her things and telling you to stick it, and just as you start truly apologizing, something, something really, really distracting catches your eye out the window outside. The neighbor, well, you think it's the new neighbor, you haven't seen them before, only they're moving vans. It's it's two men, 30s, maybe 40s, I don't know, whatever, they're old dudes, you're in high school, carry a coffin into the front door at, it's like 10.30 at night? One of them catches a glimpse <laughs> of you gawking from your window and you awkwardly slap the blinds closed in a rush. You try to focus your attention on your girlfriend as she barks at you for being a callous jackass, and your vision blurs on the black-and-white image of a carved wooden stake plunging into the chest of a beautiful fanged seductress, and blam! The name of the show comes up on the screen. Gavin, do you have any idea what the name of that show and this topic might be. I've seen this movie and I cannot bring, I cannot recollect it. There's a whole lot of stuff I've been doing lately and it hasn't been watching this awesome movie. It's yeah. gonna bother you because it is dun 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 Fright Night. Fright Night? Yes. Oh, it's gonna, uh, I would, yeah. this one, this, okay. it's good. this one's going to, to, going to annoy you that you didn't get it. I can, I was, yeah, I was quite God. certain you were gonna get this one, but, uh, in what, one of the ways that the Fright Night topic slash movie slash various films is in a way, and I mean this in a, in a very specific fashion, forgettable is because it is in a, it, it's kind of feels very straight down the middle vampire story in that it yeah. really kind of defines a version of the vampire story that, um, we all kind of take for granted. Uh, I think the culture at large, even if we have not seen the original movies from the eighties, um, it is, there are so many st standard is the wrong word, but essential elements to vampire stories in particularly the original 1985 written and directed Tom Holland film, uh, starring a bunch of people that we're going to get into, uh, that it is, it's kind of, it's ignorable in a way because it is so center of the, uh, the complex chart of various vampire properties. So, um, <laughs> what do you, you, I've already got you laughing or what do you, what is, what is grabbing you there? 
I, I'm laughing at you avoiding saying yeah, Venn yeah, diagram. Yeah, I am, <laughs> I am dodging the phrase Venn diagram like Muhammad Ali running away from Buster <laughs> Douglas in the ring. Like I, I am just <laughs> coming up with any way to say a um, a visual system of describing various things that are related but not totally overlapping. Uh, yeah, yeah, you you a, caught an, you an caught, interest matrix. Yeah, you, yes, you <laughs> yeah a disparate word cloud of of yeah. of, of, <laughs> va- of vampiric knowledge that we are uh, that we are consuming today. So, um, for those of you who are in the uneducated on this topic, um, m- many of you may have seen the two thousand quote unquote. Uh, remakes, they're not really sequels, but for today's topic, we're not going to be getting into those or, or talking about his Irish sexiness, Colin Farrell. Instead, Colin we are Farrell, only yeah. going to be covering the 1985 original film, Fright Night, and the sequel from 1988, um, and there are overlapping stars, primarily the guy who plays the main character of Charlie Brewster is uh, played by a dude, William Ragsdale, William Ragsdale. who um, has been in things. He's he's an act. He's like an active uh, performer still. Um, I when I was a kid, I was really into William Ragsdale because he was the star of a very strange show called yeah. uh, Herman's he, Head. Herman's Head, yeah. Right. How would you describe <laughs> the premise of the um, the weekly sitcom Herman's Head? Herman's Head was like, um, well, uh, was like four uh, fighting emotions, one of them being Lisa Simpson. Yeah. Um, like kind of uh, formula, like sitcom formulaically jabbing in jokes in the format of an argument about how to handle adult life. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so, so yeah, so <laughs> William Ragsdale plays this kind of like Joe Everyman who works at some fucking office. Who cares? Uh, but the yeah. the the real business of the show was it would cut to this kind of like loft apartment. That was a metaphysical space that yeah. represented his interior monologue that was populated by these various characters that represented, like, his passions. That woman's not wearing underwear. Is that all you can think about? Food and sex? Yes. Please, focus. Look out! Yardley Smith was like, a, I think she was actually playing a real character in the show. Oh, was she a real person? Yeah, because okay. I'm looking at it, and her character is named Louise Fitzer. So she's she's not one of the like passions. She's not one of the things. The passions okay. are Molly Hagen as Angel or Sensitivity, uh, Ken Hudson <laughs> as um, Animal or Lust, who is kind of a. Uh, it's kind of a like a ripoff of I want to say uh, oh you know what's his name from Animal House, um, Bluto? yeah it's kind of kind of like a, a weak Bluto like okay, he just wants to eat <laughs> and get laid and lay around right he's kind of all of yeah. the all of the like slothy um, sinful motives all at once uh, Rick Lawless playing anxiety for some reason that's one of the the main passions. And Peter McKenzie playing genius or intellect. 
And essentially, they would get into arguments, and then whoever would win the argument would be manifested by how Herman would actually behave for the next like half an hour and you know it would go back and yeah. forth and it was so it was so premisey that i mean i was probably seven years old watching it i found it absolutely yeah. fascinating because the yeah uh, the prem i really didn't care about what was happening in herman's life because he had you know like 25 year old problems but yeah uh, i didn't but the, understand or remember yeah but the gimmick was were, and the, the premise was, was amazing yeah. yeah and hank azaria played like his wacky wacky dog walking neighbor or something or no oh, yeah? no it was he was a dog walking neighbor in mad about you so he was but hank azaria plays somebody <laughs> in this fucking show and i you know i'm telling you i was seven so i don't huh. remember it that well hey it's jay no time for small talk we're late Hold the elevator. Heady. But anyway, yeah, Herman said, I'm sure you could watch it for free somewhere. It probably is not very, very good if you didn't watch it at the time. But it's a great premise. Yeah. I'm surprised that that hasn't been chopped up by, like, Fox or something and turned into a new version of it. But anyway, William yeah. Ragsdale is kind of a very kind of brunette, all-American, everyman-looking kind of guy. And in uh, in After Herman's Head, he did this movie, Fright Night, written and directed by a guy named Tom Holland, who's uh, done some acting himself, but is famous for a few mostly horror-thriller movies, including the original Child's Play, where uh, Brad Dourif transforms into the Chucky doll, uh, Psycho <laughs> 2, which was actually good enough to get Anthony Perkins to come out of um, of what he said was, uh, I'm never going to play that character again. I'm not going to play Norman Bates. <laughs> and luckily, Tom Holland um, made a script uh, or, or a package good enough to entice Anthony Perkins to come out of, uh, of, of Norman Bates jail and actually go on to do a series of sequels after that. He probably needed the money later. But... Um, <laughs> and uh, uh, the thinner and Langoliers, those those TV versions of um, Stephen King properties yeah. that have um, differing levels of success, I guess is how I would describe that. You know, if anything, yeah, you've got Bronson Pinchot screaming about existential dread um, in the Langol <laughs> in the <laughs> Langoliers. Um, so I really like the Langoliers. It's it's a concept that that I believe actually happens. Huh. Which, but I call them uh, clock roaches. <laughs> okay. Do you want to <laughs> do you want to explode that thought for a second? Because I don't. I think you're. I well, think our audience. Yeah, I think sure. the record just screeched for all of the audience <laughs> listening at home. Well, do what? Do um, what now? In metaphysics, in metaphysics, clock roaches are the things that. Uh, represent ultimate uh, entropy, like entropy of reality. So they would eat paradoxes and um, pretty uh, like a, a natural, um, they wouldn't really be organisms, but for the sake of how metaphysics works, they would be like a, a being that consumes um, unregistered or old realities huh. so that new realities can move forward with time and space. <laughs> so kind of like or a natural... cockroaches or langoliers. So kind yeah. of like a naturally occurring predator that, like, does the job of, like, the, the time, the time department in Loki. That they, like... They eat. They yeah. eat the. They eat the loose threads of reality that cannot be mutually compatible. Eating people alive? 
Where's that get fun? Yes. Well, there we have it. <laughs> Solved in the books. Kathunk done. Well, at the end of episode. Dun dun. <laughs> but um, great. I I always wondered what the fuck the Langoliers was about. And now I know. <laughs> yeah. You have to have a crazy Gavin metaphysics brain to understand the language. Yeah, I think I've seen it four or five times. Never <laughs> once did I ever come to uh, an like a, a a satisfactory metaphor that like actually made any fucking sense. So <laughs> they're the eaters of yesterday. Yeah, and I don't usually look at Stephen King novels and go like, "What the shit is this about?" Usually, it's like, "Don't be an alcoholic <laughs> and beat your family." It's usually it's usually yeah. not. You know, I mean, some obviously the Langoliers or the Stand is, um, you know, on a different level. But anyway, anyway, let's leave Mr. King alone and get into uh, motherfucking vampires, because there's a lot to hit on in this um, topic, even though a lot of it overlaps with itself. So. Things, things, yeah. things in Fright Night, and um, this is another one. You get all of you at home are going to get tired of hearing me say this, but if you have not watched the original 1985 Fright Night, go the fuck home. <laughs> don't listen to this episode. Watch it. It's about a <laughs> hundred minutes long. It's not that much of your life. It's a really great October spooky season movie. It's very satisfyingly made. It's got a great cast. It's well directed, and you'll like it. It's good. And it is uh, it is sezzy. So don't watch it with um, your babies. Watch it. Watch it with somebody that you can you can see some horny people be horny near because it is um, punchline <laughs> a movie about sezzy people and sezziness. So um, I don't want to I don't want to get to the crux too quickly. But my my opening thesis of what the hell 1985s. Um, very influential vampire popcorn movie by director Tom Holland is about is, and let me quote my, let me write exactly what I said so I don't fuck it up, is, uh, your neighbors are secretly kinky and that's fine. <laughs> Just leave them alone. Yeah. It, it, that is the, uh, that is the kind of like backdrop subtext what the hell is this movie secretly about and we'll see whether i prove that thesis or not you you all may agree with me you may not so what do you do you remember anything specifically that you just off the dome about what you know if you had like one mentally generated gif in your head of like fright night from 1985 does anything pop in there or is it just a vague tv tube haze well, see, this is the weird thing. But I, this is why I don't think I got it because no, I don't. Nothing is it. there, and I don't think that I've seen it in the past twenty some years at all. Well, I think I saw it when I was a teenager and then never again. Wow. Okay. And, and yeah. Well, every time I every time um, I watch it, it is very refreshing because I catch different things. And for a movie that is in a yeah. way, quote unquote, boilerplate, and that the ingredients of vampire movies are all there, um, it is actually extremely creative, and I'm impressed by it every time. And I realize that like I keep watching this movie every year in October, and I've been doing so for maybe like six or seven years. It, there's something about it. it it's it's it is exactly a perfect mix of creative and surprising and using all of the ingredients you're hoping for and expect to tickle 
your kind of like modern Dracula fantasies and itches. Um, so yeah. Is, um, is Harvey Keitel in it? <laughs> no, no, <laughs> no, no. Okay. Are you thinking from about? dusk till dawn? No. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, I'm just trying to, uh, that's my only vampire versus Harvey Keitel, uh, thought I can, I can pull at this moment. Yeah. Richie, would you do me a favor and eat my pussy for me, please? So Fright Night is the story of Charlie Brewster, who um, is the, you know, represents the naive high school student in my opening story. And Charlie, just like in my story, he's uh, he has a mixed set of passions. He's a hardworking, um, buttoned down, suburban white bread, red blooded American boy. He's obviously meant to represent kind of standard cookie cutter American reality in the 1980s. It is so clear that that is what he stands in for. But along with that, he's very passionate about hopefully eventually getting laid with his cute uh, girlfriend played by the uh, extremely charming and skilled Amanda Bierce as Amy, who many of us who were consuming yeah. other things in the 80s would know as uh, Darcy from next door on Married with Children, right? She was on yeah. that for yeah. um, she was on that for like 11 years or something. I mean, she must have made some good-ass TV money for that eventually. Yeah, she, she was one of the uh, writers for oh, it. Oh, was she? Well, fantastic. That's good because yeah. that, it, I mean, that does not surprise me because the, the um, we'll get to more of this later in terms of uh, her portrayal of Amy in this movie. It's one of the things that puts it head and shoulders above um, related films is her the work yeah. that she has to do to portray amy in this is broad and intense and complex but at the beginning of the movie basically you have this very cute dimpled girl next door that is um you know a matching bookend to charlie brewster's cute suburban white bread bullshit you're like okay some cute guy yeah. cute girl high school brad and janet got it on Halloween? Yeah, yeah, okay, Halloween, yeah. Some do, some bitch, whatever, man. Charlie is distracted, one, by his his girlfriend and his burgeoning hormones, and in one of the very early scenes, it's, it goes kind of along the lines that I described in the opener, which is he kind of pushes things a little bit too far and does not take no as an answer and just... Keeps And, you know, it, it doesn't really – there's not a sexual assault vibe. It's more kind of like teenage boy who goes into, like, a sexy zone. And you're like, okay, there was five seconds of there where you could have really pulled away. And every, everybody's clothes yeah. are still on. It's just like, all right, get better, 80s boy. And that that transitions into a scene that is a mix of her being pissed off about that. And then he goes from being totally fixated on her – to being distracted by the creature feature on TV hosted by this character, Peter Vincent, who is very humorously portrayed by one of my favorite sci-fi and television actors, Roddy McDowell, who, if you didn't know, is <laughs> actually American but was born in England, so it, it, that's where he gets his strange mid-Atlantic kind of continental patois. But I love Roddy McDowell because I am an original 
um, Planet of the Apes freak. I I am like I am <laughs> encyclopedic about the original '70s Planet of the Apes movies. I fucking love them, and because of that, I cannot say anything bad about Roddy McDowell. And he is hilarious as Peter Vincent, the uh, creature feature host in this movie. I still say you're making a mistake. That's the spirit. Keep him flying. What? The flags of discontent. Remember, never trust anybody over 30. We'll get more onto him later, uh, but in that, that opening scene, it's got so many of the necessary ingredients for this film. As he's distracted by that, he's then further distracted by, exactly as I uh, put into the opener, his neighbor and his neighbor's friend, just two guys, uh, moving suspicious business into the uh, Victorian house next door, right? Um, it's always <laughs> one of these suburban places that has a has one house from uh, 1895 yeah. in it for some reason. He sees yeah. business that looks really on-the-nose, vampirically suspicious, okay? So the, you, your premise is set up immediately. And Charlie, having all of these schlocky... Um, girls with their bodices coming off and, 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 um, Peter Vincent with a steak movie posters all over his wall. He is so culturally steeped in the potential to discover, um, occult <laughs> and supernatural business in his neighborhood. He is, he is ready to go as, as one of my, um, uh, grad school professors who was a, a guy who, who, was focused in storytelling. He said, don't try to make your monster, you know, you can only make your monsters so nightmarish, but what you can really do is make sure that your protagonist is extra vulnerable to that monster. So make sure that your sheriff in Jaws is afraid of the water. You know what I mean? Make, you know, yeah. that that's going to give you more juice than making your, you can only make your monster so, so uh, dripping with blood and gore and fangs, you got to work on the other end and make make the person that's terrified of it a person who is has the potential to be extremely terrified of it. So in Charlie Brewster, we have good storytelling yes. of somebody who is super tweaked up about the idea of a vampire moving in next door, and th there is how we introduce the uh, the character of Jerry Dandridge, who is our. Um, Vampire in question, portrayed by a guy named Chris Sarandon. Do you know who I mean by Chris Sarandon, Gavin? If, uh, that name, does it jump to you? I knew it. I knew you were bluffing. I knew he was uh, bluffing. No. Well, if you look him up, the thing that you are going to recognize him from is super obvious. He is <laughs> Prince... Humperdinck in The Princess oh, Bride. Yeah. Um, I know exactly who that and is. And so he's kind of a uh well on his IMDB it describes him as the handsome, the handsome, weird, and worldly looking Chris Sarandon has shown his versatility in everything from vampires yeah. to Jesus Christ in hypnotic performances that have been controversial but irresistible. And um Chris Sarandon, interestingly, is uh, two things. Jack, Jack's, Jack Skellington when he speaks. Ah, yes. He's also that, which is amazing. Um, yeah. And in addition to that, he's not only 
from originally Beckley, West Virginia. He is is also a mountaineer. He is a graduate of the theater department. He has a Bachelor bachelor of the Arts from WVU, where um, I have my Bachelor of the Arts. So I've got that in common (laughs) with Chris Sarandon. Uh, I wouldn't say that I'm as "quote unquote" worldly looking, whatever that uh, is intended to mean, but we're gonna we're gonna get to that yeah. because that's actually it it plays to the meaning and significance of concepts in this film. Uh, why you would cast Chris Sarandon and what he does with the character of Jerry Dandridge, yeah. um, they do relate to his appearance on some level. So um, he's kind of uh, Sarandon plays this guy he, as. A, a version of the vampire that now we have in our lexicon, but honestly did not exist at this point, I would argue. He's a kind of tall, handsome, vaguely European continental guy who wears expensive sweaters and, and long pleated pants and is, uh, is, he's erudite and well-spoken and charming and has scarves for no reason. He, he's he's a, a, intentionally a very different flavor than Charlie Brewster and his like white bread suburban family, uh, and those things, those vibes that he gives off, specifically that he's uh, v- extremely sensual, if not outright sexual and animalistic, and kind of in a way kind of European androgynous while still being kind of broad shouldered and, and handsome. He's got kind of like a Gregory Peck thing going on or, uh, um, an old 50, another forties or fifties Hollywood, uh, thing going on. It's not, it's more kind of suave than say Robert Mitchum, who's doing kind of like a, you know, an evil wolf eyed, thing it's but it's it is kind of almost an old hollywood vibe that he's giving giving off and supposedly according to the documentary uh, according to the documentary you're so cool brewster the story of fright night that it was chris sarandon's uh chris sarandon basically said one i can't do a vampire movie two i can't do a movie with a first-time director but he 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 read Tom Holland's script and he liked it enough. He said he would have a conversation about him. Uh, he would have a conversation about it with him. He'd sit down. And in that meeting, in combination with the script, that Holland agreed to give Sarandon a certain amount of control over the portrayal, even in the script, of the Jerry Dandridge character. And so there were certain things that that Sarandon asked to be included, dynamics relating to the um, seduction and relationship of the Amanda Bierce character, and certain minor actory things like that he would eat fruit in various scenes that would have a, I'm just extrapolating this part, you know, a sensual and symbolic uh, layer to it that is totally different from kind of a nosferatu vibe and 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 yeah. would pull it as as kind of a, almost an updated um 1980s living room soap opera version of dark shadows but in a good way where you're the, where the vampire yeah. actually could be living next door but in 
you know, but a guy that is kind of dark shadows for the MTV generation. And that's what you get. You get this tall, handsome, tan, suave dude who is able to infiltrate Charlie Brewster's life because Charlie Brewster being kind of a, you know, 17, 18 years old, immediately blows his wad and freaks out and wants to go over and kill the vampire, right? So he immediately overplays his hand and shows to the neighbor next door that he he tells him he knows he's a vampire. He's going to stop him. He calls the police, you know. There's this great scene where toward the toward the beginning they go over the cop the, he calls the cops. He's in there with his cop and the the guy who's his minion, a character named Billy, um, welcomes them inside, and then Jerry shows up, and they talk about, you know, he's a vampire, and, you know, I, it happens exactly how it would happen in real life. You get this, like, nice, articulate dude who obviously runs a business, although he lives in a house that's covered in, that's, like, filled with weird old sculpture and and uh, spider webs that need cleaned up but it's just two white guys in suburbia in a weird house that needs some tender love and care you know the cops it's it's not the cops yeah. job to um to go in and start you know stabbing people with stakes through the heart so the premise is that charlie is totally fucked up he's lost all of the element of surprise that a that a true Van Helsing character would have, and now he's totally screwed, and so much so that in a in an upcoming scene, Dandridge is in his living room because his his mom, who does not uh, who is like divorced from dad, has let him inside, and so <laughs> the guy can get into his house at any time because he's been invited in, and so he's. A double extra super vampire fucked. At last, we can retire and give up this life of crime. Ch Charlie <laughs> looking for some ace in the hole, some way to turn things around, is inspired by the the character of Peter Vincent, as I said, portrayed by Roddy McDowell, who is a, a kind of a Elvira Svengoolie, um, a late night creature feature host. Mm -hmm who um, Charlie tracks down because somehow he's a famous TV character and local to wherever, whatever town they're in um, and confronts him. And Roddy McDowell is playing this guy as kind of a broke-ass, low-rent, Vincent Price mashup versus Peter Cushing, which is fairly obvious from the name. Um, they had actually intended to get Vincent Price to play this character, but at the time, Vincent Price was suffering some health issues and was not available to do it. So Roddy McDowell apparently made the character choice to portray Peter Vincent as a terrible ham-fisted ha ham actor that is reliving the one character that gave him fame and glory, who is kind of now moldering in his meager studio apartment on what he can cobble together from this kind of resurrected career as a creature feature host. And Roddy McDowell's um, hilarious and subtle. You know, there are layers of Roddy McDowell that can feel like Martin Short in where he goes, he goes kind of Broadway big sometimes. But oddly, this movie gives him an opportunity to play both down at like a one and do tiny, 
you know, like facial work to react to things in time and also go very broad and bold because you would think this character would just be an 11 out of 10 the, the way it's described, but it's a really interesting um, dynamic portrayal. But now, of course, the, the real Peter Vincent character doesn't actually believe in vampires. He's a, he's a, he's somebody who, he's a fucking actor, right? He's a, he's a, he's a theater guy. Yeah. So it's Charlie's need to uh, convince this guy to have somebody on his team and through um, polite discourse agrees to uh, Jerry Dandridge agrees to have them come over and do like vampire tests on on uh, on Chris Sarandon and they come over and <laughs> what you think is going to happen happens where he seems to kind of dodge the necessary pieces that a, a, a skeptical, polite adult would th who doesn't actually believe in this happening would throw at you to, to prove that you're, quote-unquote, not a vampire. And then after that is resolved, suddenly, basically by accident, Roddy McDowell sees in a, uh, a prop mirror that's also a cigarette case that's left over from one of his old movies that he doesn't cast a reflection. And they leave, they flee, they flee having failed, <laughs> but with um, Peter Vincent now utterly and totally convinced that one, vampires are now real, and that this, uh, this kind of like suave guy who wears Cosby sweaters is one of them and lives in this suburban neighborhood. Yeah. Hello, Charlie. Don't be rude. Check hands. What's he doing here? I invited him over for a drink. What? I invited him over. Why? What's the matter, Charlie? Afraid I'd never come over without being invited first? <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You're quite right. Of course, uh... Now that I've been made welcome, I'll probably drop by quite a bit. Then a series of uh, hilarious elements ensue. They they meet up with a guy who is portrayed who is the best friend, the character named Evil, who I have to shout out the incredible performance by the guy who plays Evil, who did not have a um, who had a fairly brief uh, amount of success during this 1980s original era. Stephen Jeffries plays uh, the character of Evil, the kind of really wacky, like 12 out of 10 over-the-top weirdo best friend who is also obsessed with the occult and kind of like wears suspenders and has crazy spiked hair and, and obviously a problem with mania. <laughs> yeah! I used to admire you, you know that? Well, of course. That was before I found out what a fake you were. Peter Vincent. Uh, who totally does not yeah. believe Brewster and his wild-eyed vampire conspiracy nonsense. Um, but long yeah. story short, the, the all of the teens get embroiled in being hunted down by uh, Chris Sarandon, and his uh, his ghoul Billy, 
And I, I will define Billy specifically as a ghoul. For those, for those at home who do not have a collection of uh, 14 Vampire the Masquerade handbooks at home, what is a, Gavin, <laughs> what is a, what is a ghoul in the context of vampire supernaturalia? A ghoul is a mortal servant who is given either uh, a blessing or directly given vampire blood to be uh, uh, an empowered, still mortal, but um, vampiric type yeah. of person yeah. who has vampire-like powers, can live as long as the vampire, as long as he keeps getting whatever the vampire is giving him. Um, like a lesser mortal vampire is pretty much what a ghoul is, but is always in service to a master. Vampire. Yeah, that was, yep. That was, um, that was exactly what I, yep. Better than what I would say actually is, uh, and a ghoul is really essential <laughs> primarily because a ghoul can go out during the day and does not suffer the sunlight yeah. al allergy that is, um, essential to being a full on vampire. So a good, depending on what your fiction you're drawing from is usually Usually they either drink the vampire's blood or that there is some other um, non-physical mystical force of uh, uh, energy that they draw from the, the, the vampire as a kind of servant parasite that will usually be harder, hard to kill or supernaturally strong, or it just depends on the property, like what powers they have. Uh, that is makes yeah. them still mortal in in that the, they can be killed much easier than a full-on vampire can be, but uh, they are more dangerous than a regular-ass yeah. person. And Billy just looks like some douchebag that works for, that works for yeah. Jerry. But we will find out later that Jerry that uh, that Billy is definitely a ghoul. Um, and uh, the ghouls are not the only... This is going to come up more in um, Fright Night 2, but ghouls are not the only kind of minion that in uh, even right down the middle of vampire fiction a, uh, a vampire can have. The, under your category of minions, you've got ghouls, and generally a Renfield yeah. is a different thing from a ghoul. Sometimes... They will just yeah. sometimes a Renfield and a ghoul, like a, a charm. Yeah, mortal. where you know, if you think of uh, Tom Waits in the '90s Dracula, he, he's playing literally the character of Renfield. But in subsequent uh, fiction, a Renfield is someone who is taking, who's being psychologically manipulated via mysticism or hypnosis or psychic yeah. powers of some kind by the vampire, but it is a different mechanism and a different kind of minion as a result. And Renfields tend to be insane and disposable and kind of like off doing their own thing. Um, there, are, there are other yeah. different depictions of various kinds of minions, but those are, those are your main categories in, in like kind of 101 vampire business. And they get us about as far as we need to understand both of these um, Fright Night movies, both the original and Fright Night 2, which we're not going to jump into quite yet. But essentially, they're, they have to run and play these various cat and mouse games that all are of um, kind of um, uh, various levels of tension. I will say that one of the main benefits that this movie has over the, the, the sequel is that this movie's very well paced and every scene does does a few things and then moves on to the next scene. It is it is a lot tighter 
and more efficient and more well organized than the the sequel is. And at one point, things are we're going okay. That Amanda Bierce and and Charlie Brewster are going to escape being kind of like chased down by walking Lamborghini Chris Sarandon through the town until they make the strange decision to <laughs> run into a well-populated nightclub. Um, I, and in my <laughs> notes, I said, you know, uh, uh, like uh, Amanda Bierce says, hey, it's okay, Charlie. We're going to run inside of this music video. Everybody knows that vampires hate music videos. At which, at which point, a the the really defining Chris Sarandon section happens in the movie, where there is this uber sexual, like MTV montage uh, dance between Amanda Bierce and Sarandon that has like a kind of big ingenue vibes, and she really does a good job selling. This kind of vampiric hip, this vampiric hypnosis trance that she is put under, and there is, you know, there's all these people dancing. You're kind of wondering, uh, as happens in a lot of movies, you're like, how big is this fucking town that they have? A nightclub of this size in 1988, but whatever. Like, they never established that it's, like, Chicago or Detroit or anywhere. It seems kind of like middle-of-nowhere America. Like, in that fucking movie directed by Dee Snyder that's in a tiny little town... Yeah, I was they, just talking about. Were they cut to that, that like raging that up, like, gothic right industrial yeah. club? Goth- like, everybody yeah. bondage <laughs> the fuck out, and there's probably like two unpierced yeah. nipples in the whole fucking place. And you're like, wait, wait a second, wait, 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 wait. What is this town that s- supports the most hardcore goth industrial club I've ever seen in my life? And I've been to them in Berlin. Like, I this is this is at, yeah. and, and yeah. also what is the what was the band that was playing? It's, oh yeah, Bile is playing. Also, yeah, it was Bile. Bile. Is playing a live show to all these people that are disinterestedly yeah. hardcore industrial dancing in a town which appears to have maybe 9,000 yeah. people in it, but supports a gothic industrial scene of like, yeah. oh, I guess a, like 500, like, you know, uh, Mortal Kombat goths yeah. or something. Like, what the? Well, hold on. Hold on. Yeah. I got to move to this place <laughs> and open up a butt pluggery because this shit is off the chain. Yeah. And the, also in that movie, the detectives go there looking for the killer and give up. They're like, oh, this place yeah. is br- br- not where the killer is. And that's where the killer <laughs> yeah. is. You're like, hold on a second. Are you guys Canadian? Because apparently you were the worst fucking cops ever to exist in the history of cops. Yeah. Like you, you, this is apparently Keystone Cops too, because of you, your town, which maybe has 10 or 12,000 human beings in it, surprisingly yeah. supports a a uh, yeah a Mortal Kombat night nightclub yeah. with like four hundred yeah, fucking goth industrial yeah, four hundred Doug seen. Bradley pinhead freaks <laughs> just doing like an absinthe orgy during a live bile performance where they peel off their iridescent faces. They're like, yeah, bad guy can't be in here. Yeah, Go to, he's, yeah the bad guy is, can't be in he's here. He's probably <laughs> down at bingo night. <laughs> like, yeah, that, that totally yeah. makes sense, D. Snyder. It totally makes sense while you keep directing more movies. <laughs> anyway, what the fuck was the name of that movie? <laughs> Strange, Strange land. land, right, right, right. I, I'm a pro. Yeah. <laughs> don't get me, don't get me twisted. I'm pro D. Snyder as a human being, um, but yeah. he should not yeah, write movies. Awesome. Um, 
No. So that, so that so anyway, the real the, this <laughs> mo- this movie has a real precursor to that. Wait a second. How big is this town scene where you know there are there yeah. appear to be about three to five hundred really cool nineteen eighties breakfast club teens in like suspenders and trench coats dancing to like sparks and other really cool like Devo and edgy ass shit that's on this like pretty good kind of new wave meets yeah. vampires <laughs> meets like nerds soundtrack that Fright Night has. Yeah. And um and so there's this like super horny um like Greek vampire with great hair, you know, Chris Sar- Chris Sarandon as a living Alfa Romeo commercial, like strutting his shit and like <laughs> dipping Amanda Bierce and her having these this very compelling um controlled by the beauty of the worldly vampire character, like emotive experience, and he's totally got her. Um, and they, they do a full on like vampire bite business. And then Charlie, like Charlie busts the whole scene open, which causes, um, you know, it causes Dandridge to have to overplay his hand and like do the half red vampire, like vamp out in the middle of the club, which seems like not a good choice if you were trying to like move into a small town and be the new under the radar vampire. But we're going to get to. My reason that I secretly think this is there is a separate story under the story, in my opinion, that is not obvious in this movie. I have a I have a headcanon theory about some of Chris Sarandon slash Jerry Dandridge's choices as a character in this movie that I'm going to I'm going to reveal later on that why he would make this really weird choice to be the new vampire in town and not prevent himself from going like full Buffy face in this scene. Cause it yeah. seems like exactly the worst choice you could possibly make. Right? Like, no, whatever yeah. you do, you do not vamp out in a large public arena. Right. It's the worst choice because you know, you just yeah. bought a fucking then y- house here. You get the, yeah, you get the uh, human inquisition. Yeah. Staking you yeah. in your house. <laughs> right. So because you do it a really good job of skirting authority and not getting all this attention thrown on you and you're putting a lot of effort into it, like and successfully, you know, tricking sex workers to come over to your house and, and burying burying them and decapitating them and putting them on the railroad tracks like halfway across town. And this this seems <laughs> like you're too intelligent to to pull this kind of a boner move, but I, I I I have a fan theory. Oops, all monsters. Yeah, what's his theory? All right. Well, my the- <laughs> my theory is that cr- that Jerry Dandridge is actually unknown to anybody else in the movie. Doing a leaving Las Vegas wants to die self annihilation uh-huh. that he is not revealed to anybody else, and that he is actually. He's actually like picked Charlie Brewster as the perfect neighbor to eventually cause his vampiric death. And he wasn't trying to fall in love. I really wish you'd come home with me. You're so cute. And I'm really good in bed too, believe me. No? Okay. He is he is yeah. tile, tired of being a moldy oldie, and he has moved to suburban yeah. America next to a uh, a horny uh, horny for vampire death teen in order to actually finally go out in style. But now on the road to nowhere, he's about to take a detour. Hi, are you working? Working? What do you mean working? I'm walking. 
pretty funny. If you'll come to my room for one hour, I will give you $500. Yeah, I really like where the villain is so good that, like, and such a professional and so efficient in his villainry that the point of it is for the hero to win, and that's the villain's plan, because he's sick of living. I love those. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and let me tell you, I'm about 110% confident that uh, the creator of this film, Tom Holland, did not think that was going on. I believe that it just... Yeah. This is my personal you-can't-tell-me-I'm-wrong uh, hack on it. But This is my, yeah. like, deep subreddit jackassery opinion, where I'm like, well, but some of Chris Sarandon Brandon's move, his moves only make sense within the context of him deliberately fucking up his own shit. Like, this is someone who yeah. behaves throughout the film as someone <laughs> who knows not to shit where you eat, but forces these scenarios. And, you know, the storytelling in the club scene does not, it just doesn't follow that he could not have gotten out of that, uns like, with he could have he could have just tripped out he could have bugged off he could have done like a um you know a, a horny gray leather jacket irish goodbye and still come out on top because yeah. up until that point he's got all of the cards you know he's he's got the yeah. aces and he's got the trump he's going to win and that is the first point where you see a a a, a kind of like a little bit of glimmer of light through the window of Charlie Brewster's attempt to turn things in his favor. And you go, well, that's a weird choice. And it was, it kind of was a choice. You know, he didn't, Brewster didn't do something so ingenious that Chris Sarandon had to play those cards. I think Chris Sarandon is actually secretly behind saying, okay, I want this guy to have the Greek hero experience of truly triumphing over me. So I have to move to a town that has a vampire killer and a, a, a young boy that can be his protege protege. So, um, yeah. so we'll see whether that, that is evidenced from the other things that happen in these movies. But, um, I think, uh, I'm, I want to mention something. I want to, I think we're going to take a break here and get into the apothecary. <laughs> Hey, everybody, I'm just jumping into the apothecary with a little bit of my own personal endorsement of an item called 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do. It is a book that's just out uh, about a week, week and a half ago by um, uh, an an author and podcaster I'm a big fan of. Her name is Kate Sloan, and it's very well written. It contains, as you imagine, 101 kinky things even you can do. Some are from the more obvious, and some are a little bit more out there, but it's uh, so well written and informative and consent-oriented. Please, if you're looking for something in this area, go do check it out. You can find it directly on her website at girlyjuice.net that's girlyjuice.net or you can just get it on Amazon just search up 101 kinky things even you can do coincidentally she's also a very hilarious podcaster she's on two shows one about sex called the dildorks and another one that is kind of TMI the show with her friend Brent Black that is called Question Box. So check out Kate Sloan's new book, 101 Kinky Things Even You Can Do. Check it out. Okay, thanks. Hi there. My name is Douglas Rassensberger, and I'm a CEO and founder of Douglas's Cutlasses. Have you ever found yourself in this situation? 
You've just gotten home from a long day of spurring growth at your small but thriving business. You're just trying to slice some quality deli meats and cheeses for a relaxing snack, and suddenly there's a mysterious intruder rummaging through your garbage outside. What's a domestic disruptor to do when you get in a pickle like this? Pull out your handy-dandy, short-handled, half-guarded navel sword, that's what. Here at Douglas & Colors, we've got every possible colors for every conceivable scenario. Are you an aspiring or current CEO of a Fortune 500 company? I've got a color for that. A middle school teacher struggling to maintain discipline in the classroom? I've got a color for that. Looking to add a little flair to drab dinner parties? I've got a color for that. Some people say to me, but Douglas, I'm not a pirate, privateer, or sailor. What do I need with a battle quality 27 inch half guard naval sword? I'm so glad you asked. Here at Douglas's Cutlasses, our research shows that the vast majority of conflicts, both business and personal, can be positively affected by the introduction of a modest, well-crafted naval sword. So let's get swashbuckling. No matter what's your problem, an easy-to-wield Iron Forge Cutlass is probably the solution. So once again, I'm Douglas Raffersmer of Douglas's Cutlasses. Come get stabby with me. Please go to paypal.me slash and make a payment there. And that's oops with two O's. Again, that link is paypal.me slash oopsallmonsters. What's fairly apparent without really having to get into a film school paper is that this movie is about uh, Charlie, the main character, Charlie Brewster's, um, it's about his tentative relationship with sexuality in general. Basically, the, the vampire business of this movie functions to represent his idea that sexuality is dangerous and intimidating and the Chris Sarandon <laughs> character represents as the traditional vampire that sexuality at large and I would you could say that I was overreaching to that idea but both in this film and the 1988 sequel the movie is the film the story is the story is bookended by uh, a original scene where he's making out with his girlfriend um in both cases a very kind of like white bread vanilla janet of a girl and then things are interrupted by his uh by his fixation on a vampiric conspiracy and in both cases the movie ends with him coming to terms with the stress and strangeness of the vicissitudes of the vampire conspiracy, <laughs> so to speak, and um, finally, finally <laughs> so being speak. able to, for lack of a better term, consummate his goals with his partner and live in a world that accepts the reality of uh, his own sexuality as a normal thing. And that's 
it's it is the same thing in both movies. Both movies, other than a necessary element where he starts out in a fucking asylum in the second movie, <laughs> come from starting out having a general uh, sexual anxiety that is then played out through all of the rest of the film and is concluded in the last scene by, and well, now everything's good. Yeah. You're able to have picnics and get laid with regular non-vampiric women thanks to conquering your anxiety, a.k.a. a, a tall Greek man uh, in a in a leather trench coat. Yeah. The, the thing I wanted to say about Chris Sarandon kind of exactly ties into that. One of his first roles was Leon in Dog Day Afternoon. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. I would have been so angry if I had forgotten because it was it's in, <laughs> it's in my notes. Uh, if you this is another one. If you've not seen Dog Day Afternoon, run, don't walk yeah. to your local blockbuster and pick it the fuck up. Um, Dog Day Afternoon is one of my favorite movies. I probably saw it way too fucking early for the depth of its oh, um, yeah. we, we definitely of its content. Its where uh, <laughs> uh, it's got it's got um, Al Pacino and him and what's his name from the fucking Godfather movies who plays Fredo, who is a a much yeah. storied uh, actor who died way too early and was only in absolutely incredible things. Um, what the fuck yeah. is his name? Uh, I gotta. I'm gonna oh. listen. Gotta look up Dog Day oh, Afternoon. Oh man, we gotta cut this. Yeah, out. yeah. Because if I don't say it, it'll be afternoon. This is gonna be the second person. John Cazale. John Cazale. Yeah, John Cazale was really absolutely fantastic, and Pacino and Cazale play depict a real true life story of two um, bank robbers. And the the miserable reality of them trying to uh, escape, directed by none other than um, Sidney Lumet, 1976 biographical biographical crime drama. If you have not seen Dog Day Afternoon, run, don't walk. And in that movie, who? How would you describe the character of Leon that Sarandon plays in that in that really um, stark and incredible role? How would I describe Yeah, who's it? Leon in that the, movie? The embodiment of tragedy <laughs> is um uh, Yeah, <laughs> is yeah, that's Leon true who, in a way. Yeah, it's interesting yeah. because cuz being God, who, having Yeah, cannot live in in 1975 as who she wants yeah, to be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Is Leon is now what we would we would say a trans person in in our current le yeah. lexicon who to us and to people coded at the time in the seventies would have you would have said kind of a a hyper feminine like queer gay man but in reality is a is a trans yeah. girl um, who gets pulled yeah. in because she is the partner of the John Cazale character who is secretly. Who has a you know kind of a secret under the radar relationship? Well, it's Al Pacino. Oh no, shit! You're right. It is Al Pacino, who you know, of, yeah. who is uh, John Cazale uh, insists that the news doesn't say that he's gay. Yes, um, <laughs> and and they he keeps saying like gay as if it was a gay relationship when really it was it was Leon was supposed to be a woman, right? And Al Pacino's character saw her as a woman 
and didn't think he was gay at all. Right. And he was kind of trying to explain that to everybody, including uh, Kazale. Right, which is one of the... Like, which is I one think Sonny? Um, uh, Sal is. is the Kazale character. Sal, yeah. And it is one of the... How would I say? It is the verisimilitude of Sidney Lumet sticking to the actual meat of a, of a biographical tale and not peeling it out into these Hollywood bullshit areas and depicting a thing that almost certainly has a fidelity to the actual events in a way that we can look at that film and say, okay, is every single line of dialogue match what happened in reality? I don't know. But the, you can see the ingredients that match with reality just as we would understand them now is that is, that is a, that is a, a, a trans woman who does not have the ability to, um, through hormones or surgery, become uh, perhaps the way that she would like to look, and has a masculine, hetero-behaving partner in the the Sonny Al Pacino character, and they see themselves essentially as having like a queered heterosexual relationship, where one of them is a trans person. Yeah. And because of that, yeah, Chris Sarandon, I, Leon is in a way a, a character of true tragedy because of. The the in, in, in events that envelop the whole thing, you know, in addition to being a character who's kind yeah. of, you know, lyrically over the top in their manner of speech and gets kind of like stereotypically New York verklempt over the whole thing when they drag her onto the phone to, to exchange with Al Pacino, you know, through the through the police. Yeah. You should see her it's mother and father together like a bad car wreck. It just it just rolls off his back. He sees him, he pays the rent. Unbelievable. I was the one who wanted to get married. He didn't, he didn't really want it, but uh, he did it. I don't know why. Well, why did you want to get married, Leon? I, th- I thought it would help me, but, uh, but it didn't. I, uh, I was so confused. I was doing insane things. It is both, uh, it's stranger than fiction in a way. You know what I mean? Particularly, I cannot imagine if you sat down to watch a bank robbery movie starring Al Pacino in 1975 and you were just some Goomba from the Bronx, you're going to go like, what the fuck is this shit, man? That's supposed to be a lady? I don't get it. You know, like there, there's a, the, yeah. um, the amount of like meatheadedness that must have splashed off of the, the Chris Sarandon portrayal in 75 i cannot even it's just like hurts my brain even starting to like to process it so yeah chris sarandon is kind of a more how would i say like theatrical heavy hitter um serious actor that see that his his yeah. stature and seriousness reflect the literal um, the literal frame of the, you know, the kind of tall, worldly, hypnotic stuff that is used to describe him on the internet. Does that does that comport with what you're, you're, you, you, yeah. what you've got in your mind? Yeah, I, I'm really glad you brought up Leon and Dog Day because uh, that it is such Absolutely. a big, it is such a big <laughs> movie on my radar, and it, you know, there's no, it's not gonna, it's yeah. not does not fit within the confines of this show. So having a reason to bring it up is like, great. Cr- Chris Sarandon, um, now that I'm like collectively remembering everything that he does, like brings 
not only a great performance in specifically what he's portraying, but somehow he will bring everything else that he ever has also, if you know about it. Huh. And you will, you'll see all of that, but at the same time, also be specifically focused on the role that he's playing currently, like the, the thing that you're watching. And, um, and, or maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just how I watch him. But, um, if you get that too, then like, what, a, what the, what the hell, what the, that's the best actor in the world. <laughs> yes. And a mountaineer. God damn it. And a mountaineer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, take that New York city. But any, but the, to the point, Chris, yeah. Chris Sarandon is, he's, he, it, you, you can love him, and he's good at being uh, likable, and he's, and we know he's good at being hateable because uh, Humperdinck <laughs> is successfully Humperdinck. like a real, <laughs> yeah. you know, a real cowardly piss bucket of a human being in Princess Bride, yeah. and you need a, the, an antagonist of true kind of lazy disinterest and self-aggrandizement like Humperdinck in order for. Yeah. The you know the the dread pirate Roberts to be a a hero of grandiose proportions. Yeah. <laughs> I did a lick all day, It's a shame that probably most people have no idea that he's ever been in anything else. If you're uh, under the age of forty five, but um no he's he's fantastic and <laughs> and he yeah. he acts as more than the anchor of Fright Night. He is really. Um, the secret ingredient that kind of like the whole the whole uh, recipe revolves around, I would say. Also, speaking of mountaineers and uh, the thing that we kind of touched on earlier about what where in the hell is this town that would have this club? I, I thought about it for a second and that there's like our town. <laughs> it would be our town. <laughs> Maybe not hundreds of like goth industrial people maybe only like a uh, uh, several couple like a uh, several uh scattered groupings yeah. and maybe somewhere around 75 but it still would no, exist I mean, if, if you i mean if you packed in a girl talk show at the turn of the century at, at one two three yeah. with like the the, yeah. the kind of people that i was like um, hanging out with you go to one of those shows that's that's got to be three or four hundred people there uh, yeah oh, in, a, in a town in a, in a town of 40 or fifty thousand here in Morgantown um, and <laughs> so that math is doable I would say yeah I mean I would say that it, it, it as a you know there's not a bile show happening in the in, in the fright night you know it's kind of just like a D, you know, DJ Friday. Yeah. And I, I guess the size of the venue and the movie, you know, it's, yeah. it, it's, it's barely stretching cinematic possibility. It's not, it's not going totally loose asshole. Like the D Snyder film yeah. where you're like, what the fuck? But you know, you know <laughs> we, uh, we also, do have also, all of those um, Victorian houses and a couple of venues that would host bile and have. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, t t yeah, I, I wish I had seen Bile in um in Morgantown. There's yeah. so many things in, that I've played here that I didn't see for various reasons. I know, reasons. and um, it and it was it was so 
I could have seen fucking Bo Diddley if I had been paying I know, attention. It was casual and to I, us too. I, like, I well, it. I just can't make it that day. Instead of like, there was a, there was such an there was such an, an extreme privilege. It was like having Detroit or New York level privilege in a town of like fifty thousand. I know, people, I know. Where you're like, hey, Bo Diddley's gonna come another time, right? Yeah. Like that's not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> I shouldn't do the. I shouldn't do the. I shouldn't do the biographical calculus that he's probably seventy nine. Has yeah. been <laughs> like drinking since he was twelve. Taking ourselves in the ass twenty fifteen years later. Damn it, I yeah. didn't yeah, I didn't see Dick Dale, I didn't see Gwar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What in the hell? But all right. Well, from what I from what I've been told, going to see Gwar is a dangerous affair. So. Yeah. <laughs> As another flavor that I do not want I want to make sure that I do not um miss out on um Amanda Beers. Yeah. Uh, because she just absolutely um, she absolutely demolishes the the heavy lift that is necessary to do the – and the reason it's a heavy lift to play Amy in this movie, um, if you Google this – I mean, this is a case where I would say just go ahead and Google image search like Amy in Fright Night yeah. because I'm going to have to throw this on, up on the, um, on the Instas. Uh, because there is one iconic special effects image at the end. Yeah. And that is kind of the penultimate, meaning almost the last Amy. And the various Amys, which are mostly depicted as emotional states by Amanda Bierce, are... They feel like separate and distinct people, and I mean that in a good way, where the the true ingenue ribbons and ribbons in the hair... Amy, right in the beginning of the movie, is is someone who has evolved to be someone else by the time that she does the MTV sequence with Sarandon in kind of the center of the film. And then she is kind of put into a um, satin-suffering seductorist nightgown for the, the approach to the climax of the film. And then she has finally totally vamped out and becomes this... Um, wild-eyed pumpkin fang <laughs> monster <Zemesh> beast. <laughs> yes, Zemesh Ghoul is exactly right for those of us who were masquerading through this episode along with Gavin and I. Um, that is is deliciously over the top where you say, like, that's too much. If you were, like, on set, you'd be like, damn, we're fucking wrecking this this effect. But it, it really hits, it hits where it needs to hit to symbolize the nature of the terror for the overall idea as experienced by Charlie, which is really the point. Charlie is our POV. It's why he's so fucking white bread and normal. <laughs> and, and so the ultimate, the ultimate mangling of his reality is to turn the ribbon haired girl next door of Amy into a, a nightmarish creature of the night whose face is twisted into like an insane clown posse show. We were like, oh my God, what the fuck is going on here? Jesus Christ, kill it with fire. Right? And we, we were, yeah. you just, and, yeah, the, and that, that, go ahead. The, the uh, vamped up monster, Amy, is, is an image that you see frequently in like any type of Fangoria uh, collection of, you know, monster effects. Absolutely. And stuff yeah, like she that. goes it's from zero there. to Fangoria cover in like seven scenes. What's wrong? 
anymore. Yeah. And and each step along the way, she is she is like modulating the psychological and emotional transitions that her character is undergoing to handle that in a sellable way, in a way that your audience is going to buy as a, as a consumable idea. And it's done so efficiently, thanks to Holland and the effects and Amanda Bierce, that you're, it, it totally, it, it works and it, under normal circumstances, would not. You know, it's yeah. like when you watch the now relatively forgotten first Thor movie with Chris Hemsworth. And you're like, why did they not make Thor movies before? It's like, because they're fucking impossible and they're terrible. And Thor is impossible to depict. Right. Yeah. It's the same kind of thing. We're like, well, you need the most charming human, human being on the world who can pretend to be a Norse God and speak like a Norse God and also do comedy. And you don't buy out like your suspension of disbelief does not enter into it. You're like, yeah, this is totally happening. And <laughs> there's a reason people don't try to do it because it's too fucking hard. Yeah. Like, you know, Rag- Ragnarok and and that whole like gold bloom Waikiki, you know, Tycho Tycho vibe is extremely difficult to thread. It has to be very funny and very charming and very convincing. And that is I mean, I don't know why my brain went to that as like the yeah. the, the difficult hurdle that Amanda Bierce is, you know, similar to to yeah. doing. But it's um, the movie is so good. It's doing a thing that sounds basic, but is actually extremely difficult at like a 10 out of 10, which is why critics actually like this movie. It did not get panned the way that any other popcorn you know, vampire movie starring Roddy McDowell yeah. is gonna is gonna <laughs> get is gonna get critiqued in in the eighties. You know, like this is still back in the you know the the jackets with with leather pads era of two two fat nerds from Chicago arguing about whether it's a good movie or not. You know, yeah. <laughs> like the, like you know haughty pipe smoking critique of uh, the quality of cinema would not usually deign to appreciate the 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 Chris Sarandon performance in Fright Night, right? This is, yeah. <laughs> you know, the pop culture and culture at large had not merged into one, you know, one cyclopean John Carpenter nightmare that um, can be understood as a singular thing yet. Pop culture and high culture had not walked into the same party and gotten hammered together. It was the world was still prejudiced that some things were good and meant for intelligent folks and Fraser Cranes and so and everything yeah. else was for was um everything else was the voc you know the vox populi, the peasants, <laughs> the peons. Now you give me a beer and a woman. I give that water better worked out. The good thing about having to blast through Fright Night 2 is Fright Night 2 is almost exactly the same thing as Fright Night 1, except for some very key differences. Have you ever seen Fright Night 2? Because if you haven't, there is a different... Is it a hotel instead of a house neighborhood? It is like a hotel apartment. Okay. You know what I mean? Like uh, like probably what was an old grand hotel that's turned into independent living spaces. Okay. And uh, so, so... Fright Night 2 uh, turns the message on its head where William Ragsdale is portraying Charlie three years later having gone through tons and tons of psychiatric treatment and been totally convinced that all of this was like mass mass hysteria bullshit and none of it really happened. And it happened, but that 
Jerry was a serial killer with supernatural trappings who was killing sex workers in his neighborhood, but that the <laughs> creature feature elements were totally a figment of his own delusions. And then psychiatry manifests throughout the film in his his new um, vanilla girlfriend is a co-ed who's also a intense psychiatry major who is hoping to, you know, go to the Ivy League to become a proper out-and-out um, psychiatry professional. Uh, and that uh, Roddy McDowell is now the only one at the start of this movie who is converse from how he was in the previous movie where he's the only one who still believes. And he, conveniently for storytelling and logistic purposes, lives in the same hotel apartment building where the new vampire uh, has moved in. A, uh, and this, all of this, if you watch it again, you're going to be like, shit, this whole thing is just a goddamn Toreador handbook <laughs> come to life. I, I shit you not. So I'm yeah. going to have to going to have to pop that open for the listeners at home is the the role playing game Vampire the Masquerade that was like big Oof. in our collective consciousness yeah. in um, in the 90s. That was like, you know, hot leather jacket vampires, but like D&D, &D, where everybody plays some kind of weird fucked up vampire yeah. or werewolf or something. There was a, uh, a subclass of them called the Toreador who were like the effete, um, artistic, yeah. wine-sipping, leather beret-wearing, uh, painting-on-canvases-with-blood performance art fucko theater perverts right yeah, and, theater perverts and <laughs> exactly and and the the main vamp in this one is turns out is a very an even more ethnically ambiguous woman who is the character is named regine dandridge and uh, spoilers turns out to be the sister the vampiric sister of the chris yeah. sarandon character who is who is there for revenge okay yeah. and um but one of the few things that sets this one this movie apart in a way that is in any way um uh, superior might not be the right word, but distinguished and good and not just a retread of, of Fright Night 1 is that the coterie of minions that Regine has, um, and before I get too far, I should make sure that she is very adroitly portrayed by uh, an actress named Julie Carmen, who, um, who uh, kind of shifts in and out between uh, droll and deadpan and seductive and intriguing and engaging and captivating in a way that is actually, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't compare it in terms of an apples and apples way with Chris Sarandon, but it's good enough to carry the character. But her, her minion base is the one thing that I always remember from this is there are three, and I encourage you, go feel free to click into the IMDb. She has three minions of different qualities and, and kind of they're, they're actually all ghouls, but it plays a little bit loose with it. One, there's a guy, um, Brian Thompson, who is a, a real that guy who plays the, the oh, ink black from X-Files. Yes. Who, um, is yeah. one of my favorite 
supernatural minions in anything ever. Yeah. He plays, uh, there's kind of di- the three different flavors of a kind of minion in this. He plays a ghoul who, for some reason, only eats bugs yeah. and is like a button down kind of like CIA bouncer c- type. Um, yeah. And then John Grease, who everyone uh, will know as Uncle Rico from uh, from uh, fucking Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah, John Grease, is, who is Uncle Rico in Napoleon Dynamite, plays a hilarious <laughs> werewolf flavored ghoul in this, where he's kind of like, ha like kind of like like yeah. wacky wacky uncle energy. Um, who visually does like a werewolf transformation, but still for some reason operates under the vampire rules, probably yeah. for script simplicity. Doesn't yeah. make sense. But he's still fucking hilarious and has some of the best like lines and some of the only real comedy in the movie. Oh, no, you don't. We're all through for today. You can say that again, partner. <laughs> and then a third um, kind of... It's a minion, but is totally articulated as a sub-vampire as opposed to a ghoul of Bell, who is an extremely androgynous character portrayed by this extremely evocative um, actor Russell Clark. And oh, yeah. th- they're they're like in like major pain. And the new guy, not a ton of like, you know, top level cinematic success, yeah, but, but just I, a, I know who I, and the fallen and yeah. this really, really evocative, like icy gaze that kind of has a kind of a kind of Grace Jones kind of sense to it. Yeah. Is it you know, are you feeling me there? Yeah. And, um, and portrays that he's, character. He's in a it, Grace Jones production. Yeah. Yeah. It totally makes sense it, because there's a real kind of steely-eyed, androgynous, um, Michael Jackson versus Sergeant Pepper, long-haired thing going on to that character. It's a very interestingly costumed and designed and and acted character who is, for some reason, kills people with their long vampire claws while on roller skates. And and, and so the, the like, extra, like, MTV 2.0 level of the ghouls really adds (laughs) a level of levity and strangeness and surprise to the movie that pulls it out of kind of its slower paced retread of the existing ideas. Some of the main characters are brought in to have more of what you want them to have. McDowell is good. Ragsdale is good. The ghouls are hilarious. The The big baddie in um, Regine Dandridge is very funny. And it also lampoons the co-opting of culture by the vampires because Regine turns into kind of this performance art Elvira who steals Roddy McDowell's job as the horror <laughs> host at night, yeah. um, which is both efficient storytelling and um, it is a throwback to the original scripted ending of the first movie where there was uh, it was intended that Jerry Dandridge would become like a TV personality and like become vampiric on screen and it would be like dun 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 <laughs> uh, but for various reasons that we, they didn't go in that direction so um to before i forget i want to to try to back up my uh my secondary thesis that Jerry Dandridge's goal was actually to 
um, Nicolas Cage nuke himself with um, with blood instead of a shopping cart full of um, flavored vodkas um, yeah. in, 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 the, in the first film because he, he just makes a few choices, including like, why did you put your coffins in a, in a basement that was surrounded by windows that were just covered over with like, like, like acrylic paint. It's a very bad choice for somebody that's been alive for centuries. You really could have avoided that, avoided that one. Uh, um, and, yeah. and I really think that the whole time, if you, if you, if you watch it with a, with a, a kind of subreddits paranoia, um, you can, yeah. you would say that Jerry Dandridge is actually walking Brewster toward his ultimate death with a series of kind of um, blood-tinged breadcrumbs that will inevitably end in the Nosferatu-style um, immolation that he's been wanting for uh, decades, if not centuries. I wanted to touch on like how there's a lot of vampire stories or movies, fiction, TV shows and stuff that will include a werewolf aspect, even though they're already established as vampires, but mm -hmm. they'll turn into like a, a crinos form thing or uh, have like a, a wolfman transformation or something. And that was in Fright Night Part 2 with the ghoul. I think more than anything else, that's kind of like a convenient, like, uh, lassoing in of everything to try and put it in your awesome movie. They seem to just kind of have it uh, stuck on there like an extra thing. Like, by the way, this vampire can also tra transform into a werewolf. Yeah. And um, there's a lot you could do with that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, the the John Grease character is, is super fucking funny. Like... Yeah. I... The triad of him and the other two ghouls is really, if I, you know, this one I do not watch every year, but I remember like sitting on the couch and walking, watching Fright Night 2 with my dad and absolutely just like cracking up at the, the ghoul bits. Cause like there's a, there's one relatively brief segment where they just decide to fucking go bowling. And it's just, so yeah. they just, so like the, the, the three of them without their vampire mentor. Right. And so they, they walk into the bowling alley as it's closing, kill all of the staff and then just have like a hilarious, like supernatural, like ghouls fucking around montage where they just like do <laughs> bowling with like yeah. decapitation and drinking bud out of like Budweiser mugs gags. You gotta play to win, Bozzy. Never fall behind, man. <laughs> yeah. It is like, you didn't have to put this in this movie, but uh, it's better because you did. <laughs> like, I'm glad that you but, did. <laughs> like, I want, I want the prequel of these three, like, jackasses as its own film. <laughs> like, I want, yeah. and like that, that's the movie because you could get probably John Grease to just like make up down to look at a little younger or do come up with a, a supernatural reason oh. that he could play that character. And, Absolutely, um, he would do it. He's still doing stuff. 
Yeah, and uh, the Bo- the Bosworth guy, he's still around, and he's, I mean, he's still of that titanic proportion where he looks like a video game NPC all yeah. the time. So, so I, you know, yeah, that's the, the sequel that nobody asked for, but everybody uh, everybody wants. Yeah. Um, we could call but, uh, it Fright Day, the prequel. <laughs> <laughs> uh, fr- fr- yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Truly. They were an aqua teen hunger force. The punchline about Fright Night. One, Fright Night is good. It is it stars it stars really good performers. The original film is actually expertly created. It is a smart it is a it's one of my favorite subcategories, which is the subcategory of a very smart movie disguised as a dumb movie. And um, Chris Randon is fantastic. Uh, everybody else does more than their proportion of lifting, including uh, McDowell and Bierce yeah. and um, and Ragsdale, and uh, it, it it also I sh- you have to also keep in mind that this is prior to Lost Boys and prior to Near Dark, so culturally yeah. it is understood. In the way that Daniel Johnston is a precursor to Nirvana, that probably the ideas that were circling in the world about what you could do with a creature feature and how intelligent it could be in the MTV era, as opposed to creeping around the edge of your TV tube screen in dark shadows, that this really kicked open a door that everybody else was able to walk through and say, yeah, vampires could be like young, sexy, horny people that are like cool and are able to manipulate um, societal expectations in a way that means they can, they, they're not just kept in this quote unquote, like pine box. Like you, they're able to get away with shit and, and be a larger cultural symbol and a monster that represents a wider array of ideas and a, a buffet of concepts that makes them something that they were not prior to that. And um, Chris Rannon and Tom Holland specifically represent kind of the, the turn of the corner in the things that a vampire can mean in culture overall, because you basically don't have a Keith, uh, Kiefer Sutherland um, vampire and you probably don't have a um, uh, uh, what's his face fucking Hudson why can I not remember his name you probably Bill don't Paxton. Uh, you probably don't have a pill a Bill Paxton vampire or a you know a, a Southwest vampires in a van directed by um, Catherine Bigelow without the, uh, <laughs> the Sarandon uh, portrayal of Jerry Dandridge so um, even if you don't see the movie, you should uh, triangulate it and how wildly culturally significant it is within uh, supernatural movies, creature features, and just vampires as a concept that we um, think of overall. Yeah. So, bla- whammo, blammo, vampires, Chris Sarandon, vampire, Tom Holland, vampire. Fright I, I Night. Really... I knew it. I knew you were bluffing. I knew he was bluffing. All right. Well, we uh, we the rails have switched from German to Russian, and we are barreling toward Moscow at an unsafe speed. So let us let's get out of this fucking episode before we uh, before we regret it. All right. How do I? I already, how do we finish I this? Show? Have the answer. Is Fright Night bitchin' Van Art? <laughs> is Fright Night? Is it? Is it? Is 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 it bitchin' Van Art? Bitchin' Van Art. 
Uh, that if I don't if I put that in the show and don't do anything to it, people are going to think I did an effect to you making that sound, and I did not. That's <laughs> yeah. just your human being. Yeah, mouth. that's me. I can make noises. Bitchin' van art. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, yeah, I agree with you. There's actually so there are so many options to for Fright Night to be bitchin' van art. You've got yeah. you've got bat monsters. You've got roller. You've got roller skating ghouls. You've got Chris Sarandon got the, in a cover in a leather jacket. Yeah, you've, you've got yeah the cover art to the original VHS slash um, one sheet slick are quintessential bitch. And I would not be surprised if that already was somewhere in 1989. Hmm. You know what I mean? I if, if well, you, I'll, I'll take if somebody if somebody you. grabs a a bitch and van art uh, from uh, Fright Night. I I would not be shocked. Send it to us. Throw it our way at the Instagram because I'm sure it would kick ass. You'd have a nice sky <laughs> blue and black motif and fucking rule. So yes, on the uh, on the spreadsheet of is it bitch and van art? This is a, a hard yes. Okay. Is it is it is it is, is, is it bitch and van art? Oh, uh, so with that we can slide over into. Um, our um, our famed describing segment, where yes. in this case we describe um, what is the uh, venerated hip hop star Busta Rhymes. Busta Rhymes describing Busta. Describing Busta Rhymes. A Halloween resurrection. <laughs> Well, yeah. don't feel too bad. Just because we have a, a horror movie show does not mean that we have to approve of every Halloween movie. I am Yeah. I am I am agnostic about Halloween movies. I think that some of them <laughs> are good and some of them are not. And so yeah. I I it is not it's like I it's not compulsory. I'm not gonna watch every incredible Hulk movie because some of them are trash. Yeah. Mm. This Ooh, this picture though is not trash. It is, um, yeah. it is. I will say on fire because uh, whatever <laughs> this room that Buster is in is definitely on cinematic fire, which appears to be a CG fire, if you ask me. Um, yeah. So the grip standing six feet off screen, um, like Hollywooding a uh, a lamp in his direction to make it look like it is a live light that is moving. But um, yeah, he's got yeah. some. He's got a real shit. He, first of all, he, wears, he looks like he's wearing. Is he wearing like a Michael Myers like jumpsuit in this? I do not know yes. a single fucking thing. I do. I probably watched Halloween Resurrection, but then forgot yeah. it the next time that I um, took a trip to the uh, restroom. I think I'm, you might have been with me, but I saw it in the theater and yeah, forgot maybe. everything about it. Maybe. Do you remember why he's wearing a Michael Myers jumpsuit in this? Because. I know, and that's why I picked the pictures to, okay. to like find out. So we are not going <laughs> to so look it up. Find out that is my declaration. I have on. no interest in the truth. I have only wrong answers. In yeah. do I want in my yeah. mind? Because it look it looks like um, the punchline is uh, woo-ha, Turns out I was Buster Rhymes the whole time. Not a not a yeah. not a small blonde <laughs> suburban boy. Um, I was uh, a a, tri a tribe called this asshole, and then just like chops your yeah. <laughs> chops your fucking face in half. Um, apparently, the reality was that the the inner city wanted its vengeance, 
and it has dreads, and it is very good at speed rap. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. I'm looking at the. He's plot also of doing. He's, I have literal. I have genuinely no interest in the actual truth of it, because and he's giving. Yeah. He's giving big. He's giving big Halloween the holiday energy with his face. Like he's yeah. doing a. I don't. He also appears to be spiking the camera. Like he looks like he's looking directly at us. So I don't know if in this shot that this is a POV where we're. I don't know. Jamie Lee Curtis probably isn't even in this fucking movie because during this period, I don't. Was she in this movie? I don't know. I don't give a shit. Oh, um, other than my general weird. desire to know what Jamie Lee Curtis is doing at all times, that I put no effort into, other yes, than checking my Instagram in daily, I could not tell you whether she was in this movie or not. I'm gonna see this new movie where she is like as giving off like hard, angry grandma energy, which I'm which I'm a fan of. Um, There's a new one. <laughs> There's a new one, like right now, like Halloween. Oh man, it kills. That's how in touch I am. Yeah. Like literally, like this week. Um, probably for Halloween. Mm. Now that I think about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and yeah, this one looks <laughs> like it might be good because she's she's uh, she's super pissed off. Is the, is the general Halloween the general the meme thing. of it? Um, yeah. And it is probably not directed by Rob Zombie, so um, you know that's no, that's a good sign. David Gordon Green. Yeah, that's a that's a different guy. And they were him and another um, and another uh, cinema bro were actually on uh, Joe Bob Briggs's show last week, doing um, yeah. doing pro- promotional seriousness seriousness slash stick with uh, Joe Bob. Yeah. So um, you know they're they're really trying to get the. Uh, the the horror uber nerds um and you know that's a good thing like i david gordon green i hope this kicks ass for uh all of for everybody's benefit but in this photo yeah. like busta is really he's he's mean mugging like um like 11 out of 10 i'm enjoying it yeah um uh, i hope this is not it the looks- original aspect ratio of this show because it, this movie because it would indicate to me even more intensely that this movie sucked because it's like a fucking it's almost a it's like a not even a 16 by 9 but anyway don't listen to me what were you gonna say (laughs) i was gonna say that this picture looks like it should be in like a game as as a portrait of an npc that that's gonna get absolutely (laughs) it is uh there's so much negative space to his left that you've got a perfect area for that like Back, yeah. back of the G.I. Joe, um, like, dossier rectangle yeah. with all of the, like, code name, born, Detroit, 1982, <laughs> yeah. you know, like, you know, likes Hawaiian yeah. shirts, hates racism or, you know, whatever the fuck, like, um, yeah. you know, communicate, <laughs> com- communication expert um, or whatever, the, yeah. whatever the hell. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's a it's a nice um I don't know. There's something very. He's good at. But here's something I'm realizing: is Busta Rhymes is is good for movies and TV because he's good at using. He's a vocal performer, so he can use his voice to communicate ideas, and he also yeah. is somebody that, as opposed to a lot of rappers and just musicians in general, uses his face as a tool as opposed to yeah. the place where his eyes and mouth live, and yeah. he is. You know, he's kind of David Bowie-esque in doing, like, using 
turning himself into a kabuki machine in a way that yeah. like hits points. <laughs> you know, he's not Lawrence Olivier. He's not Chris Sarandon. He's not Sigourney Weaver. But he is able to <laughs> like push out feelings to hit yeah. hit bullet points and scenes in a way that is. Uh, I mean it to be a compliment, not a not a dig. Um, oh yeah, well, every every one of his music videos is captivating, and and it's not necessarily because of the set pieces or the fisheye special effects or anything. It's his it's his face moving while he's rapping. It's it's just it's hypnotic. His face works with yeah. his style, and yeah, like in a it does. like it's kind of the reverse of like the way that like Biggie's face kind of does nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where like th- the yeah. way that Biggie's face does nothing is a something, and um, yeah. which is great because he was you know kind of a lazy performer for relatively obvious reasons. Um, but like, yeah. I, but Busta is like Busta's working hard. He's kind of the Trent Reznor of rappers. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he's yeah he is he's not he's not <laughs> fucking around. He is he is in the gym and he is like shadow boxing on stage and earning that fucking earning that uh, t shirt money right. <laughs> Like, um, yeah, <laughs> uh, that's uh, no, I'm, I'm really enjoying this because I don't know. All this whole segment is mostly I'm going to say one good thing and one bad thing about using Busta for this segment. One good thing. He's a very interesting character. I love like having yeah. a reason to actually follow him more. But then, two, I realized that like and hold off on this. Uh, why I mean this thought while I explain the whole thing is. I think we mostly got to do weird white dudes because I'm pulling I'm pulling my punches about talking about a person of color because I don't want to like like I cannot go at him the way I would go at um, Nick Cave right because <laughs> because like Nick Cave is like I realize in a, a category where like you know he's a he's a weird old white fucking spellcaster which is ostensibly what I'm about to be in like 15 years <laughs> so I feel yeah. like I can go like hard and raw at Nick Cave and I feel like <laughs> I'm not gonna like I really like using I really like describing uh, having a reason to learn more about Buster Rhymes because he's a genuinely interesting human being, but I'm like, I'm really watching what I'm saying about him because I don't want to like <laughs> yeah. accidentally well, go at a black dude in a way that's going to get me, you know, put get yeah, get, get me on the New York Post. Buster Buster Rhymes to go out of his way to use me as a dumb. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Busta, we really like you, but we're probably going to move on to a more uh, traditionally cartoonish oh, yeah. white dude this, next uh, time. <laughs> because yeah, so, I think so that I can so that I can the, really fucking like raw dog my jokes <laughs> and not. Yeah, feel I think four is the most we could do of describing anyway. Mm. I was going to bring that up. Yeah. So let's yeah the, let's get a, a traditional ghoulish white 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 boy to to. to <laughs> riff on next time, <laughs> at least for the next couple of uh, segments, please. All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Um, Well, this, this has That's been... That's kind of why I picked him, too. That's kind of why I picked him, too. No, it's, a, to no, it's how, good. how it's many a, punches it's good. we no, would it's, pull. No, it's, it's, it's overall a good thing, but it, it taught me... To yeah. to stick more into a lane, you know, it's not we want the we want the <laughs> visibility and the diversity. But if I'm gonna if I'm gonna throw like um, jokey grenades at people, it's better if they're in my general racial zone. <laughs> I have figured out. <laughs> cool. Thank th- right. thank you for this. Is a very good one. I may it may actually cause me to watch this 
damn Halloween movie again, which would otherwise would maybe never happen because I yeah. I put in I put in my hours watching Michael Myers movies. You know, I I danced on the dance floor at the horror convention with the guy who showed up as Michael Myers before everybody else and just danced for the first five hours. <laughs> like there was somebody yeah. at the Hunts Valley Horror Convention that was just a very I mean also a Michael Myers costume. It's not actually that complicated. It's a mask, jumpsuit, boots, knife, but. I love yeah. the energy of when I would show up and and me and evil Jeremy and 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 uh, and um, uh, rock and roll Roarbaugh would get to the place and buy our and buy our <laughs> disgusting amount of booze on the way in, and I would branch off and kind of do my own thing and do like be drinking a whole yeah. bottle of Jägermeister and just find the dance floor immediately because I knew that yeah. the party was happening when a person who I did not know in any other way except as the dancing Michael Myers would be <laughs> exactly where I wanted them to be <laughs> on the sparsely populated lazy DJ bullshit dance floor that was for some reason in like a, a basement bar of this hotel with like four people dancing to the monster mash and one guy totally ripping shit in a full-on Michael Myers costume for a guaranteed two to four hours. Like, like no apparent friends around, not talking to anybody, not like, not like doing a bit, not Instagramming it, no tick, this was like, you know, flip the flip phone era. This person was just totally going hog wild as Michael Myers to, you know, to Michael Jackson and Oingo Boingo for no obvious reason other than it was their happy place and I was like I don't know you person I've never even seen your face but I'm so glad that you exist and you're always doing this when I come to this horror convention it makes me it makes me uh, it makes me uh, truly joyous I don't know why the combination of dancing Michael Myers is so satisfying alright let's end this fucking show Uh, let's see alright script script (laughs) script 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 okay well and that brings us to the end of our time with you, dear reader. Until the next time when... Until next time when we deliver you another batch of beasts, bullywugs, and bowls of flesh-eating dessert fluff. And if you'd be so kind as to tell a friend or support us by throwing Oops All Monsters a five-star review on iTunes, that really does help. On the opposite end of science fiction and fantasy uh, from Monsters is Battletech, and I do a bunch of Battletech stuff on my Twitch channel and YouTube. All you have to do is type in Gavin Longshanks. Uh, please, if you would, um, share an episode this spooky season on your favorite social media or uh, and you know get us on Instagram for the images that go along with our describing episode and that also show key images from uh, the episode at large. Comment on Instagram. Comment anywhere you want, including sending us emails at oopsallmonsters at gmail. Send us RPG stories, suggestions of monsters that we should cover, um, any kind of sto- Halloween stories since it's spooky season, and you send those to oopsallmonsters at gmail.com. Yeah, that's all good stuff. And uh, also, if you want to toss a coin into the potion fund, our friend Jeremy will still won't stop dying. Uh, so hit us up with a one-shot <laughs> contribution at paypal.me slash oopsallmonsters, or if you're feeling really froggy, sign up at patreon.com slash oopsallmonsters. 
Oopstall slash patreon.com slash Oopstall Monsters. <laughs> Lastly, I uh, must thank my wonderful friend Katie for our incredible theme song. Her work as part of the duo The Darling Kathleen's can be found on YouTube at The Darling Kathleen's. And with that, I have been Hess. And I have been Gavin. And we have been Oops. 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 All monsters. That that last bit. I'm <laughs> vacuuming that. It was all fine until that whatever the fuck that is. The wall. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> even <laughs> is that? It's like Jeremiah the Bullfrog. Kind of. Yeah, it's I. Lower my voice and put my tongue I'm, I'm over not, my teeth and then fluff my cheeks out. And go, I'm not looking for a, a Meisner not, class Robin I, Williams explanation for how you do it. I mean, what the I, fuck is it supposed to be? Um, I don't know. Like, uh, <laughs> okay, okay. Dis- That's video fine. distortion. That's, yeah, I, 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 yeah, I get it. I get it. Okay. I'm, cutting, I'm cutting this shit off. Damn it. All right. Cut.